0: so good to be back with you. I I think I sound a little echoey. I'm not sure we'll be able to do anything about that. Uh, We're using a new microphone this morning, so we might just have to, but we're making a lot of sacrifices to be here this morning, uh, including you're having to smell your own breath with the mask over your face. Kind of glad I'm preaching this morning just so I didn't have to continue to go through that want to welcome you back to church and also welcome to those who are joining us on Facebook Live. I think this is the first time we've ever done that. And so if you're a part of KCP and you're not with us physically this morning, but you're on uh, Facebook Live, we really miss you. We love you. We wish you were here, but I do appreciate uh, you making all my televangelist dreams come true. We are... Um, we're going con- to continue in our series this morning um, by looking at the psalm, Psalm 34. And our series is called Summer in the Psalms A Singing Theology. If you think about the reasons that we sing, uh, a lot of times it's because we're, we're passionate about something, we're celebrating something, we, we sing for birthdays, we sing at concerts, we sing at, at ball games, we, we sing at weddings. We, we love to sing when things begin to overflow and come up through our lives. And so part of what we're doing with this series is, is saying uh, what more would give us reason to celebrate than to look at the attributes of God, to look at God himself up close, to look at the things that are characteristic about our God and true about our God, and to let that inform our emotions and our hearts and to turn us, to turn our lips and our actions and our lives into the lives of praise and singing. And so, there's no, nowhere we see that more clearly, I think, than in Psalm 34. And you'll pick that up right away as we dive into the psalm, because David starts off just with psalm. He can't help himself. And so, let's look at Psalm 34. The words will be on the screen. Psalm 34. And let's study this passage together this morning as we think about the goodness of God. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days will keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth." When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a minute and pray together, ask that God's presence would be with us this morning, that we would be able to, to hear and see from his word. Well, Father, your word tells us that the enemy comes to kill and to lie and to deceive and to destroy but that you have come that we should have life and that we should have it to the full. And so I think that what is true in my own life is that so often the enemy would want to take the circumstances of my life and use them to create doubt about your character and your goodness. But Lord God, I pray that your word would be powerfully alive this morning in each of our hearts. That you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, the goodness of King Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would buoy our hearts and give us freedom in this liberating sense of life that we have, the true good life that we have in God. We need that more than ever, and we pray that your spirit would strengthen our hearts this morning through your word. Only you can do that, not me, only your word, only your spirit. So we pray that that would happen in Christ's name, amen. Well, shortly after I, I remember this psalm this week, Psalm 34, because of a story that happened to me shortly after I graduated from college. We went on staff at Campus, Out, with Campus Outreach at UGA and when we moved to Athens, my wife and I, we really didn't know anybody there. And I was sort of desperate for mentorship and desperate for connection. And so I started calling the local pastor there. His name was Ed, Ed Hague. And I said, Ed, I want to spend time with you. I want to get some time with you. Will you help me get introduced to the area? And I want to learn about ministry. And, and he was gracious. But one of the things that he, he did is he sort of said, we, we might not be able to get lunch. I'm a pretty busy dude. But just tag along. Come along with me. And so he would take me uh, on hospital visits, and we would go to prayer visits, and we would eat lunch with other guys. He just would invite me in. It was uh, sort of this beautiful leadership development philosophy of just come spend time with me. And so one one of our first visits, we went to the hospital to see one of Ed's dear friends, who was named Mr. Bill, and Mr. Bill was an older man who had recently suffered a massive stroke. And so as we went up into uh, his, near his bedside, uh, Pastor Ed's custom was to bring his Bible to read a short passage of scripture and then to pray. And so as we got close to Mr. Bill's bed, uh, Mr. Bill, we realized he couldn't speak. Uh, this, this stroke had ravaged him and left him helpless in that part of his body. And so as Ed began to read the passage Mr. Bill was trying to interrupt him and get his attention. And we were trying to figure out what he was saying, and he, he kept saying, 34. He was trying to get out a number, and at finally we were able to sort of interpret it. Was it 34? Is that what you're saying? And he nodded, and he smiled. And so Ed said, I think he's saying Psalm 34. We need to read Psalm 34. And he's, yes, yes. So we start reading Psalm 34. And Mr. Bill became very peaceful His breathing began to ease. He smiled as best he could. And I think what struck me as this young campus minister uh, in this new town uh, with this older man was that when he was smiling, he smiled through the whole Psalm, through all of Psalm 34. I would have thought, well, I can understand how you would draw comfort right now from things like, well, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them, or the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, But he kept on smiling with peaceful agreement, even through the verses like this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. And I thought what was strange about that was how counterintuitive and opposite that was from what had just happened to him. Just a couple days ago, here was this man who was a picture of health and active service in the community. He was very active and suddenly he was reduced to this helplessness and everyone knew the prognosis. Everybody knew that it was just gonna be a life of month after month in nursing home after nursing home only to end in a really probably sad death. Why would he be able to draw comfort from these words which didn't seem to characterize his situation at all? I can remember Ed telling me on the way over to meet with Mr. Bill, this man is unbelievable. He lives and breathes God. That's what Ed said. And the reason that story came back to me today, this week was because when I was reading Eugene Peterson's translation of Psalm 34 in the message, he says in verses one, the way he translates it, when he says, my praise will always be on, your praise will always be on my lips. Eugene P- Peterson translates that this way. I live and breathe God. It made me think of Mr. Bill. Ed told me that Mr. Bill had memorized most of the New Testament. He had memorized a large portion of the Psalms, that he knew these large chunks of the Old Testament. I said, Ed, is this guy a navigator? Like, they have these great systems for Scripture memory. He's got to be a navigator, right? He said, nope. In fact, he would have never understood that those kind of programs were out there. He just read his Bible. He just read his Bible. He lived and breathed God. I think that what I've come to realize is that the reason that Mr. Bill was able to smile and rest as he heard these promises, which seemed so counterintuitive to the situation that he was in, Was that he had a biblical mind. He had a mind that had been transformed by Scripture. And when our mind has been transformed by Scripture, then our circumstances do not alter the way that we view God, that we view His character, and the way that we view His promises. But instead, when we have a mind that has been shaped and transformed by Scripture, Then our view of God and his character and his promises shape and inform the way that we think about life circumstances and not the other way around. As one commentator said, our deepest hope is then unbounded by this earth, unbounded by your situation, unbounded by your circumstances because your hope is set on the unchanging nature of God and his promises There is plenty to be sad about, right, right now in our world, or angry about, or terrified. This place is so broken, and it's easy to feel helpless. But the question this morning is, are you tempted to let those things shape your view of God, or does your view of God transform your perspective about those difficult things? And how can I be the type of person who filters through this biblical mind the troubles of this life, and is able to come out on the other side, saying, his praise shall continually be in my mouth, verse 1, and that the eyes of those who look to him are radiant, verse 5. I want to radiate as I experience even trouble in this world. How does that happen? Well, David shows us the way in this psalm. He shows us the trajectory as he meditates and reflects on the goodness of God, even as it appeared, hope was running out for him and life was on the brink. Now, if you have your Bible in Psalm 34, there is a notation probably at the beginning of the chapter. It's a little historical superscription, and it'll say something like this A psalm of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away. So, what that note is doing is it's giving us the historical context or the situation from which David then writes this psalm of praise. So here's the story. And the story comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now, in 1 Samuel 21, David has defeated Goliath, okay? And so what happens after he defeats Goliath is there's this little song That starts cropping up in Israel. And it goes like this Saul, the king, has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And so, as David's notoriety and fame began to increase in Israel, King Saul becomes incredibly jealous and he begins to try to take David out. And so, after the third time that Saul tries to kill David, David takes off and he runs for his life. He's alone. He doesn't have any food. He doesn't have any weapons. And he shows up in this town called Nob. And the priest at Nob realizes how vulnerable that David is. I mean, he's totally alone. And he's got no weapons. He's got no food. And so he happens to have this priest, the very sword that King David had used to kill Goliath. He so, so he says, look, you've got to take this. you got to go. Wherever you're going, take this with you. Now, the crazy thing that is that after he leaves Nob, David decides that the safest place for me to go to flee from King Saul is Gath. Now, if you know anything about Gath, Gath is a town in Philistia, Philistia, which is the enemy of Israel. And not only that, but Gath was the hometown of Goliath. So here is David coming into this city with the very sword that he used to kill Goliath. And this is this young, rising superstar of your enemy army who has killed your local national hero, and he's waving his sword around, and he's all by himself. And so, quickly, he's recognized, and he's ushered into the presence of the king, and the king's like, I've got some questions for you. And David really quickly realizes, maybe this was a bad idea, (laughs) Like, maybe this wasn't my best idea, that the safest place to go was Gath, And so as he's kind of putting two and two together, and before the king, he says, this is going to end badly. And so he has this idea to act like a crazy person. And so he starts foaming at the mouth, and drool comes down his beard. He starts scratching things on the walls. And Abimelech looks at him and says... Am I short on crazy people here in Gath that I need another one? Would you just get this man out of my presence? I don't want to see him anymore. And so rather than David being imprisoned or killed, he is driven back out into the wilderness. What an odd story to produce Psalm 34. But that's the backdrop that we have as we get into this passage this morning. And what's crazy about this is that for David, this situation, which seems so odd for us, if we could put ourselves in his shoes, was absolutely terrified. And he felt like his back was against the wall. And there's no way that he could think about, how am I going to get out of this? And so if you could think about the pressure and the fear and the nervousness, this is what happens for David in the midst of this. And so out of his pursuit of God in this situation, he sees the goodness of God. And he begins to sing about it. There's a testimony of God's faithfulness. And then there's an expression of God's goodness. And then we see an assurance of God's goodness. And so those are the three things that I want to look at this morning. And so we'll start with the testimony of God's goodness. It starts this way. David is giving us a personal testimony of the goodness of God. In verse 11 and 12, he says, "'Come, children, and listen to me. "'I will teach you the fear of the Lord.'" Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit. And so what I want us to see this morning is that there is a way in which the goodness of God is meant to transform our mouths, our speech, our lips. That when our heart is filled with the goodness of God, it pushes its way out. Now that's not a new idea around here. We all know the principle, the principle of worship that if you're a college football fan, for example, and you love the Crimson Tide, or the Bulldogs, or the Tigers, does what's happening on the football field and the excitement of that ever push its way out of your mouth? Of course it does. On Saturdays, we get excited about it. And that's because what we taste, what we worship, what we savor, what we delight in, comes out in our life. And so here's David's testimony to God's goodness. I sought the Lord. And he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This poor man called out, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. Now, we can probably be tempted to say, well, no wonder he's singing. Something good happened. He was in jail. He was in prison. He was about to die. He got rescued from it. So, good thing happened. But I would say we should be careful, because the reality is that David's problems aren't exactly over. I mean, essentially, He is going right back to the desert. He is still alone. He is still without food. He is still without direction. And all he has is the sword. He has nothing, no money. He's alone and uncertain of what's ahead. So it's not like his life has exactly turned around in the blink and that suddenly there's nothing to be afraid of. But yet, his heart produces this song, God has delivered me from all my fears, I sought the Lord, and he saved me from all my troubles. And so what I want you to see is that this is the arc, that this is the trajectory, that this is the liberating way and joy that starts to perpetuate when you seek the Lord with deep fear, with a deep fear or a deep insecurity, and you bring it in his presence, even in something that looks relatively small, and he comes through, he shows up. I love the story of John Piper, who's this you know prolific spiritual giant to us now, who um, speaks with such thunder and power whenever he communicates in public. Did you know that when he was a teenager, he would say, "I could not even speak in public. My voice would cripple up. I couldn't get words out. It's like my whole throat tightened up. I would turn red." And so he he went to a Christian college, and they They asked him, because of where he was at as a student, to pray out loud in front of the entire student body. And that idea gripped him with fear. It paralyzed him. He thought, there's absolutely no way I can do this. God, please get me out of it. And yet, as he said yes to God, he stood on the stage and began to pray and trust and run to God with this issue and trust him as his refuge he said that he began to feel God's presence and a peace come over him. And it became his first, it became his first success speaking in public. And John Piper would say, it wasn't like suddenly all my acne was gone. It wasn't like I was suddenly not scrawny. 6'3, 220 and ripped. It wasn't like I was suddenly great with the opposite sex and had girls flocking to me. But to me, in that moment, the Lord had delivered me from all my troubles. It's as if something happens when we bring our deepest fears, our insecurities, our lies before him, this exponential faith moment when God intersects, big, faraway God intersects our stories right here. We say, "You do care about me. I need you." The same thing that happens for Peter when he's on the shore with Jesus. He says, not because I want to, but because you say so, Lord. And he crosses this bridge of faith. And suddenly it's not about all the fish that they catch. Instead, he goes to his face in worship because he's transformed that God has shown up and intersected his life in a place where he was trapped or terrified or broken. And so the testimony then becomes not, I broke out of a Philistine jail I was able to speak in public. I caught a bunch of fish. But rather, I'm free from something that had been paralyzing me. I'm free from fear. And I don't know what's ahead. But I know this, that God is good. And he can be trusted. That's the testimony of God's goodness. So here's David, still in the desert. He's all alone. Nowhere to call home. There's a price on his head from King Saul. Someone's got to take him out. And yet he's saying, I understand this in a much more profound way. Even though I don't know how in the world God will fulfill all his promises to me, I know that he is good, that he's not playing games, and that those who come to him, he hears them and he delivers them. So what David is doing in this psalm is he's saying, it's not just King David. You know, it's not just John Piper. It's not just Peter, the fisherman, the apostle. You too, come with me. Come with me. Magnify the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Test him. Try him in these things. He's inviting us and imploring us to run to God that way with our hearts. I think there's probably been times in my life and all of yours where if we're honest, we're afraid to go to God with those deep fears and insecurities. Because what if he doesn't prove faithful? What if he doesn't show up? Will my doubt and discouragement and unbelief start to come up in ways that that I won't be able to handle? And here's what David's testimony is. He says, don't keep the Lord at an arm's length in those moments. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Seek him. He hears the cries of the righteous. I don't know where the money will come from. I don't know how your children will turn out. I don't know how that relationship is going to turn out. I don't know if that illness will work itself out. But I know this, that God is close to the brokenhearted. He is near to the poor. He is close to those who are crushed in spirit. Wherever you are humble, wherever you are lost, wherever you are terrified, wherever you are hemmed in, God is near because God is good. God is close to the brokenhearted. You know, I think about that this week, and I just thought, I have a really hard time as a sinner being close to weak people. I don't want to be around weak people and people that are weird and hard to spend time with. And I want to be around people that have boats and lake houses and are intellectual and smart and pretty and and have money. And I want to be around people that make me look better and are easy to spend time with and easy to love and strong. That's the kind of people that we want to spend time with. David in this psalm says, I'm not one of those And thank God that he hangs out with losers like me, that he runs towards those who are broken and weak. This is a good God. God is good because he's close to the humble and the weak. And he's good because he's not playing games with us. Those who seek him, find him. Those who look to him are never covered up with shame, but instead they become radiant. And so when you call and he hears you, His ears are attentive to your every cry. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, secondly, what we see in this passage is not just the testimony of God's goodness, but it's the expression of God's goodness. It doesn't just transform our speech and our words, but it transforms our actions. Verse 14 says, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So when we taste and see that the Lord is good, there's an overflow of praise, and there is a pursuit of peace with my life. Now, peace with God. God is not somebody who makes compromises with people. That's not what peace biblically means. It's not like, hey, if you could just get me an AA on that AP biology exam, well, then I will give up drinking and break up with my boyfriend who's bringing me down spiritually. Can we make a little compromise deal here, Lord? That's not what peace with God is, biblically. And I say that because I've prayed things like that and thought that's how God worked. But actually, peace with God is this much deeper thing that he's about in my life, where he wants to bring about a settled disposition a place deep within my life, a transformation, a deep stability and security that allows me to move out into the world with freedom and with boldness towards other people, with love and generosity, where I'm taking risks and getting into people's lives that are hard and spending time with them, that I'm caring for places of injustice, places where there's not mercy. I wanna get engaged in those things. And so wherever that freedom and that boldness is welling up and coming to life in my my own experience, that's the peace of God. He wants us to become peacemakers in the world. Blessed are the peacemakers. David says in verse 15, that the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ear toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, The Lord hears and delivers them from all their trouble. If I am to follow God into mission, it means that I am going to be caring about making things in the world that are wrong, right. That's what a peacemaker does. And so if you want to see the goodness of God, you see it in the way that he treats the righteous. Now, who are the righteous? When we talk about the righteous in Scripture, what do we mean by that? It doesn't just mean that it's somebody who is good morally, who does good things. C.S. Lewis points out in the Psalms that there's really two ways to understand the righteous. The first is that the word righteous from a Hebrew perspective does not refer to good people, but rather from a legal perspective, those who are otherwise doing nothing wrong and are being taken advantage of or marginalized or beaten or abused. That's who those who are in the right and righteous refer to in the psalms. So in that way, much of the psalms are cries out to God of people to see their need in places where they are otherwise misunderstood, and unseen and taken advantage of. And so obviously in our world right now, there is a ton of heartache about racial injustice and over the effects that are happening in our community. And much of the conversations and articles I read, I leave with just this overwhelming sense that this is so much bigger than me. How could I ever get to the bottom of this? And yet what gives me more hope and joy and perspective, is knowing that there is a God who cares for the righteous, who hears the cry of the righteous, who hears the cry of those who are being marginalized and mistreated. It's knowing that there's a God who can sift through every heart Through all of history, he can see every angle. He can sort through perfectly all the lies, all the distortions, every mischaracterization. He can hear and love and rule in favor of the righteous who are being oppressed and treated unfairly and unjustly every time. He gets it right every time. Praise God. And that gives me hope more than any article that I'm reading. I think those platforms are incredibly important. And if you're using them and they are helpful, that's great. But what gives us even more hope is meditating and reflecting on the goodness of God towards those who are righteous. And when I meditate on that, I see that I don't live in mode of self-protection, but instead I wanna move towards people who are being taken advantage of or neglected. So whatever your angle is on social media comments, I want to ask you, is that your heart? Does that characterize your heart? Blessed are the peacemakers. Is that what you have in mind? Is that where God is moving you in your own heart? Well, the second way that the Bible talks about the word righteous, and again, it's not to talk about outward moral behavior, but it's to talk about those who are walking in fellowship with God, those who are bound to Him in covenant relationship. It's the people of God. And so as David thinks about being one of those righteous covenant family members of God, this is what gives him, lastly, the deep and lasting assurance of God. That's our third, our third point, the assurance of God's goodness. How is it that David can be absolutely certain of God's goodness to him, even while he's still in the desert? Even while there doesn't really even seem to be a logical way that he can piece together on how Samuel's prophecy of him becoming the anointed king will ever play out. Where does the assurance come from for him? That the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. That though the lions grow hungry, he will always be provided for, sustained, and satisfied in God. Where does that assurance come from? Well, for David, it comes in the closing verses. He says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And so there's a trajectory to David's prayer here. He started off in this past experience being rescued from Gath, but now he's launching out into the future, envisioning something new, something brand new, this reality that if we're honest as Christians, we would be sticking our heads in the sand if we believe that what he was saying here is that Christians will be exempt from broken bones. I mean, yes, David has been delivered from Gath in that situation, but he's also been on a military battlefield where he has seen fellow saints killed and slain and certainly their their bones broken. So what is David saying here? What is he alluding to? Well, this is one of those places where David is using language that he knows is reaching beyond the experience of any believer. And so, yes, he's been rescued from from Gath, but he's pointing not to himself, but to somebody else. And this passage, along with verse 8, where it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. These words in verse 20, that his bones won't be broken, are pointing to this New Testament fulfillment on the cross. Where we see the Gospel of John, where we see John writing and describing the death of Jesus. That when the soldiers would want to quicken the death... As somebody was dying on the cross, they would would break their knees and break their legs so that they would collapse and die of suffocation. But when the soldiers came upon Jesus and they saw that he had already given up his life and sought refuge in the Father, that when they saw that, they didn't break his bones. And so, so John in this passage says, for these things happened that scripture might be fulfilled. This scripture in Psalm 34, that not one of his bones will be broken. It's almost as if we find this loose thread in the psalm, that if we were to pull on it and pull on it and pull on it, that eventually we would be able to see why it is that you and I, can absolutely be convinced of the goodness of God in any and every situation. It's not just because God saw David through the crisis, but it's because of what was happening in those hours to that righteous man on the cross where his bones weren't broken. It's because we see the significance of what happened in that particular man that we can be in every situation convinced of God's goodness to us. It's the cross of Jesus Christ and as we meditate on that and find our story connected to the cross of Christ there is an assurance of the goodness of God this is what Paul is talking about at the end of Romans 8 when he gives us these words that we love so much that we trust in times of difficulty where he says that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purposes how can we know that He goes on to say, we can know that because God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all on the cross so that in times of trouble and times of despair, we can be absolutely sure that whatever the darkness, whatever the pressure, wherever we, we are in life, he's given us the son to show us how good and gracious he is. And so this is what we need most of all in our sin, in our shame, in our distress. It's to hear God saying, trust me, taste, see that the Lord is good. How can I know? Because my child, I've given you everything. I've given you my son. There is no more proof in heaven and on earth that I could show you, that I could do for you than to say, here is my son. I've given you everything so that whatever broken bones you experience in this life, you can know that there is redemption and renewal in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the goodness of God. He tasted the bitterness and the sin of sin and judgment so that we could taste and see that the Lord is good. I want to close this way and say that the thing about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good by way of application is that you actually have to do that. You actually have to taste and you actually have to see that the Lord is good for, this, for us to find refuge and to become a conduit of praise. When I was an English major at Georgia Southern, I ran into this problem every time I was about to write a paper for another class. I got into my dorm room and I was ready to write the paper, but suddenly I probably needed first to clean up the clutter on my desk. I probably needed to wash that macaroni and cheese bowl that had, I need to clean this space up, I need a clean work, working environment before I can start on my paper. I should probably reorganize my sock drawer and then maybe get a bite to eat because it's already getting late. Distraction after distraction after distraction, never got the first paragraph written, right? And I think that something similar can happen for you and I, as believers, when we think about getting with the Lord. We can start to envision the perfect prayer plan. We can start to make spots in our schedule. We wanna find the perfect Bible study. We wanna think to ourselves, what is prayer? Does it really work? How can I make sure that my prayer will work? Will he answer this kind of prayer? And what God is calling us to here is he's saying, just come. you just come? You actually have to taste and to see that the Lord is good, that there's simply no way around the actual exercise of getting on your face and getting on your knees alone with honesty and sincerity about the deepest places and insecurities in your heart and bringing all your fear to him and saying, God, I need you. I come to you as refuge. I bring to you these struggles. I'm not trying to figure it out. I can't figure it out. I need you. And when you do that, in that vulnerable place of prayer, God says, you can be convinced because what I've done on the cross for you, that you have my goodness, that you have my ear, and that you have my promises towards you, my children. The biblical mind, the heart transformed by truth, the truth of God's word and his character is the one that sees in every trial, every struggle, an opportunity for the default posture of your heart to become this. God, you are my refuge. I need you. I'm coming to you right now. I run to God. I go to God. I need God. And when my heart becomes more and more spring-loaded like this, I lack no good thing because I get God himself. And that's the best thing. So let's pray together. Father, you are good. You're good to your people. Forgive us for the many ways that we have tried to take things in life and redefine your character, redefine your promises, and redefine our perspective about who you are. God, our flesh and our hearts are tempted in that way but your word and your spirit strengthen us. And being together as the people of God strengthens us. So our life and our heart and our hope is in your hands and we lay ourselves in front of you again, all of our sin, all of our shame, and we say that you are so good. And we pray, God, that that would be the testimony of our lives and the expression of our lives and the assurance of our hearts that you are good and that it would transform our community not just the KCP community, but our families and our neighborhoods and Carrollton. And we ask that you would do this great work, that we would be continually inviting people into our midst to say, come, let us exalt the name of the Lord together, and that your praise would be continually on our lips. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. We do not have a closing song of worship this morning. But I want to remind you that if you are looking for a way to taste and to see that the Lord is good, and you want to start meeting with him again, that tomorrow is the perfect day because we are starting 1 Peter in our daily devotions. And so if you don't have anywhere to start and you're thinking, how can I get with God? I want to get with God tomorrow. I would challenge you and invite you to go on our website at kcpchurch.org and look at the First Peter study and do that study together with us in community and look at the promises of God. The first words of that are, I am writing to strangers in this world, God's elect, his chosen, his loved ones. And so there's the hope of the gospel on those pages for exiles in this world like us. So find find your hope in there. Let me uh, close this out with a benediction this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. My brothers and sisters, have peace this week and know the goodness of God. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great Lord's day.